Well, good morning, everyone. If you want to grab a Bible and point that Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to pick up where we left off last Lord's Day, Ecclesiastes chapter 11 this morning. If you're new here at Cornerstone, we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time, and today we are in Ecclesiastes 11. Ecclesiastes 11. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is really an honor and privilege that I get to serve you every single week in um, working through books of the Bible together. If you don't have a uh, Bible with you, grab one from under the chair in front of you and turn it to page 559. That's where you'll find Ecclesiastes 11. So we're going to take on a big section of Ecclesiastes this morning. We're going to read all the way down to chapter 12, uh, verse nine, 8, verse 8. And so if you received a worship guide when you walked in, you can follow along in one of the worship guides. I'll uh, read the passage and then pray, and then we'll get to work. It should be around 45 minutes or so. I want to say thank you to all of our servant teams who are serving today, enabling us to get together and to do this every Sunday. I want to say thank you to those who served in the absence of Corey and Mary. Thank you guys for leading music. It was wonderful. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart, and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near. Of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and One rises up at the sound of a bird, 
and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are not left alone to wonder about what you think, about who you are, because you have sent us your word to tell us who you are and what you think and who we are. And so we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see the truth of your word, ears to hear it and understand it. Would you rewrite lines of code in the way we think? Would you reorder the affections of our hearts and draw us away from sin and temptation? Deliver us from evil. And enable us to follow your Son in faithfulness, in fruitfulness, for his glory. And in his name we ask these things. Amen. The Lord Jesus was a master storyteller. He once told a story about a rich man who went on a journey. And before he went on this journey, he divided his estate between three of his servants. And to one of his servants, he gave a large sum of money, around, let's say, $5 million. And to another one of his servants, he gave another large sum of money, around $2 million. And to the third servant, he gave a sum of about a million dollars. The first two invested their master's money well, and they doubled the gift. But the third feared the master. And so he hid his master's money in a hole in the ground for safekeeping. When the master returned, he rewarded the first two. But the third, he stripped him of his money and gave his million dollars to the first servant. And he removed that wicked, lazy servant from his presence forever. The Lord explains To everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus was teaching about stewardship and about accountability. God has entrusted to all of us a portion of his resources, and all of us will give an account to God for what we have done with those resources. Those of us who have spent those resources for God's glory and the advance of his gospel and his kingdom will be rewarded. But those who have spent those resources for some other purpose other than God's glory and the advance of his gospel will be removed from his presence and all things good. It's really a sobering parable. 
Well, there's a similar message here in the passage before us in Ecclesiastes. The main speaker of this book calls himself the preacher. And this is the last time in Ecclesiastes we'll hear from him. Throughout the book, he's been showing us that God has entrusted to every one of us a lot in life, a portion of his resources, and it is our responsibility to steward those resources for God's glory. Well, we've heard commands from him that we ought to enjoy those gifts that God has given to us. We've been told to enjoy the good things that God has given, like good food and good drink, good relationships, good work. We've been encouraged to hold on to those good things loosely. Life is fragile, and we've also been discouraged from keeping and holding on to an idealistic expectation of life under the sun. This is a difficult world in which we live. God has made life crooked, and none of us can make it straight. But here's what we're being told. We're being told that even though life is crooked, God is in control, and we are to entrust our lives to Him and the plan that He gives for us to live. Here is in the preacher's very last sermon in the book of Ecclesiastes. He tells us to steward our lives well, remembering that our life is short and our God is in control. So here's the big idea this morning. You can see this on the backside of your worship guide. Everything comes from God. Steward your life for His purposes. Everything comes from God. So steward your life for His purposes. We'll take this passage in three parts, and you can see this on the back side of your worship guide, um, but if it helps, I'll tell you where we are as we go along. The first is this, work smart, God is in control. Work smart, God is in control. This is Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth if the clouds are full of rain, they'll empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or north, that's where it'll lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good." Ecclesiastes was written in the, in the Hebrew language, and it was probably around the 7th or 8th century B.C. Scholars really aren't sure what is meant by verses 1 and 2. What exactly does he mean, cast your bread upon the waters, because you come back later and it'll be there. I mean, is he saying, you know, bake a loaf of bread and like throw it on the water and then come back later and it'll be nice and juicy and ready to eat? I don't think that's what he means. There's a couple of different interpretations about what this means. The first is, he's speaking of investments. So bread in this, these couple of verses is bread, money. So in the preacher's day, ships would go on the water and they would go to foreign lands and they would make trades in exchange for goods and spices and such. And people would spend money, you know, send the money with the ships to go make trade and make a profit. Which was dangerous because, well, you're, you know, you're in a wooden boat on the open seas and, you know, maybe a storm could blow in and sink the ship or Captain Jack Sparrow could show up and sink the ship. Who knows? It was dangerous work. And so this is why the preacher says, 
give a portion to seven or to eight. That way, if one of the ships goes down or gets ransacked by pirates, you'll still have the money in other ships. In our day, we would call this diversifying your portfolio, investing well. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation of verses 1 and 2 is that it's referring to generosity. So cast your bread upon water, meaning give to those who are sort of downstream from you, those who are in need. So he's saying be generous. Give to seven or eight. Don't be stingy. Don't hang on to your stuff. You don't know what disasters are coming. That's another interpretation of these verses. I don't know which it is, and I don't think it really matters which it is. Because the point is the same. You and I have both been given bread a lot in life by God. Resources of time and talent and treasure. And none of those resources are really ours. They belong to God. And God cares about what we do with the resources he's entrusted to us. So be smart. Work hard and steward your resources well. This is what he's saying in verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they'll empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls at this, one, this side or that side, that's where it's going to fall. That's where it's going to lay. The future saying that there are some things in life that you can predict. Rain, clouds that are full of rain will rain. There's some things you can't predict. Which way a tree will fall. But God's in control of both things. And it is not our responsibility to worry about all of the final outcomes. It's our responsibility to trust the Lord uncertainty is not an excuse for inaction. So in verse 4, he says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Agrarian farmers understood that sowing and reaping were large, the success of sowing and reaping was largely due to the weather. So if you sow seeds in high wind, you won't get an even spread of your seeds because the wind will carry it off. Or if you harvest on a downpour, you could ruin your harvest. But farmers can't wait around staring at the sky all day watching the weather channel. They have to pick a day to sow. They have to pick a day to reap. They need to get to work. They need to be wise and take a risk. They could make mistakes, pick the wrong day, but that's just life, isn't it? And when they do, you learn and you try again. But you can't just stand around. Because uncertainty is not an excuse for inaction. In business, they call this analysis paralysis. Where you sort of overanalyze a situation so much that no action ever gets taken. And that's a problem because we're never going to know everything. We're never going to be able to perfectly predict every single outcome. We have to do our research We have to trust the Lord, and then we have to get to work, take a risk. God's in control of the outcome. That's what the preacher's saying in verses 5 and 6. As you don't know the way a spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, withhold not your hand. You don't know which is going to prosper, this or that, whether both alike will prosper. So we don't even know the most fundamental things about life. Like how God gives life. Even in this day, it's still a mystery. And so we have to be humble and trust our creator, God, and then do something. Trust the Lord and get to work. In the morning, sow your seed. 
In the evening, do the job that God has given you to do. You don't know what's going to prosper, this or that. God knows what's going to prosper. He has given us resources, and we have to do something with them. Don't be like that servant in Jesus' parable who was afraid of the master, dug a hole, and put his million dollars in a hole for safekeeping. Friends, that's not being careful. Jesus, when he, when he tells that story and the master returns, he doesn't thank that servant because that servant was being careful. He calls that servant wicked and lazy. That servant was not being careful. That servant was being faithless. Trust the Lord and take a risk for God's sake. Let me put this into concrete terms for all of our lives. That person at your workplace that the Holy Spirit has been moving you to go share the gospel with, take a risk, trust the Lord, and share the gospel. Don't have to stand around and wait for the perfect, the clouds to part, the perfect scenario. Use wisdom, pray to the Lord, trust God, and take a risk. Share the gospel. What if I botch it? Botch it. Many a soul has been saved by God through botched gospel presentations. I promise you, I make a living doing that. Besides, you don't really think that your coworker's eternal salvation is dependent upon your ability to articulate the finer things of the gospel, do you? These are things in God's hands. We just have to trust the Lord, share the gospel, even if we botch it. Botch it for Jesus. That's an epitaph. If you want an epitaph for me, you can put that on my epitaph. He botched it, but he did it for Jesus. <laughs> Another example of what a preacher might be getting at here would be to take one of those Livingstone's um, Bible study guides out of my office and take your Bible and point your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, for example, and call someone you know and say, do you want to meet with me for breakfast once a week and study the Gospel of Mark together? Or would you like to meet with me for lunch once a week and study the Bible together? Study Scripture, pray for one another, encourage one another. Take the inventory of your resources, whatever they are, meager as they might be, your time, your talent, and your treasure, whatever those resources are, and draw a straight line from those resources which God has given you to helping someone follow Jesus. That's stewarding your resources well. That's investing in God's kingdom followers of Jesus using their resources to help other people follow Jesus. So many of you are already doing this. One of the great privileges of my job is that I get to be a witness and I get to hear all of the stories of what the Lord is doing in your lives. I hear of sisters going to coffee to encourage one another in the Lord. I get to hear of some of you talking on the phone, encouraging one another in faithfulness. Some of you have started, a, we started that book reading program, and I know a number of you are already working on books together, encouraging each other. And I praise the Lord for the work that he's doing here in this church. The Lord is producing a harvest of righteousness and joy 
and many of us in this church. And Pastor Brent and I are eager to see all of you involved in helping one another follow Jesus. Christians understand that we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. The life that we have is a gift from God himself. You didn't choose this life. God chose it for you. You didn't choose to be born in this time period. God chose that for you. You didn't choose the way you would look. When God made you, he made you how he decided to make you. It was his choice. He didn't consult you in the matter. Certainly didn't consult me. If he'd have consulted me, I'd have been an NBA basketball star, right? But instead, he made me five foot nine, barely coordinated and with an eight inch vertical, right? So I became a pastor instead. But here's what I'm saying. God made you for his purpose. You you are not your own. God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe you anything. Our rebellion against God means that we have forfeited the right to demand anything good from him. But because God is wonderfully good, wonderfully gracious, he sent his son Jesus to give us everything that we didn't deserve. Jesus took the punishment of our sins on the cross and offered us eternal life. And those who look to him by faith are saved from sin and given eternal life. Which means, if you're trusting in Jesus today, your life is not your own. It belongs to him. He bought it. And the price he paid was the blood of his own son. So God gets to determine what we do in this life with our resources, with our time and our talents and our treasures. This is why you see Christians all over the world spending themselves helping one another. This is because this is what God did to us. God came to us. We go to others. This is why you see Christians building hospitals. This is why you see Christians visiting people in jail. This is why you see Christians visiting nursing homes, inviting friendless neighbors into your home for a Thanksgiving meal. This is why you see Christians picking up their friends and bringing them to church. This is why you see Christians using their vacation not just to relax, but to tell others about Jesus. This is why you see Christians getting up early, staying up late to pray. This is why Christians lend, expecting nothing in return. This is why Christians don't demand higher wages. This is why Christians forgive without holding grudges. This is why Christians refuse to retaliate. You see, this is because all all that Jesus has done for us, we do in, in return. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the Christian life. You are not your own. All that you are and all that you have belongs to Jesus because he bought it with his blood. And so you spend your life helping others follow Jesus. Draw a straight line from your time talents, and money to helping others follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Point number two. This is verses seven to ten. Light is sweet. It is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Can I get an amen? 
So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away every pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Verse 7 is basically, as you're spending your life serving the Lord, enjoy yourself. Enjoy the little things in life. We've heard this over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy the little things in life. Food and drink, relationships and work. And then in verse 8, he says much of the same thing. He says, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Enjoy every year God gives you. Make the most of every year. Don't take life for granted. I recently overheard a conversation from someone who said, oh, to be young again. And I thought, meh. You have age. With age comes experience. With experience comes wisdom. And wisdom is precious. Friends, I think it's about time that we start looking at age the way the Bible looks at age and not the way that culture looks at age. The Bible looks at age as a good thing. I'm 40, so if the Lord gives me 80 years, I'm in in the halftime of life right now. I I get to look back on the first half of my life and I get to look on to the second half of my life. And here's something I've noticed. Youth is good, but age is better. Of course, youth is good. You have lots of energy when you're young. You sleep really well. My kids could sleep till one in the afternoon if I wouldn't wake them up. They sleep so well. Young people can eat whatever they want, whenever they want. They can go to Taco Bell at one in the morning, be just fine. Some of you did that, you'd be hospitalized. Young people can go to the bathroom whenever they want, and only whenever they want, which is great. Youth is good, but age, age is better. Sure, a 20-year-old body is strong, resilient, but you know, a 20-year-old heart has not been melted a thousand times by the kindness and mercy of God. A 20-year-old heart has never endured the tornado of suffering to know the foundation holds. A 20-year-old has never buried a parent and felt the Lord's unspeakable kindness. A 20-year-old has never spent countless hours praying for a wayward child only to have the Lord bring her home. There are deep joys in Christ that he has reserved for those who've been in him for five, six, seven decades. 
a 25-year-old follower of Jesus, has barely scratched the surface on the definition of grace. Doctrine can be learned in a few short years, that's to be sure. But it takes years for humility and wisdom to come to life. First Peter says that the preciousness of our faith is tested by suffering. That takes time. That takes time. And so the preacher is saying, rejoice in every single year the Lord gives you in this life under the sun. To be sure, you should expect dark days. They're coming. There's going to be many dark days. Those are good for you. The Lord uses those dark days for your good. That's life under the sun. So youth is good. Age is better. But if you're young, if you're still in your 20s or your 30s, still hear this from the preacher, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, O young woman, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. If you're in your 20s, if you're in your 30s, rejoice, have fun, enjoy life. But remember that youth is also no excuse for wastefulness. God still cares about what you do with your resources of time and talent and treasure, whether you're 20 or whether you're 30 or whether you're 50. Enjoy the good pleasures of life while you're young. When you're young, love comes easy. When you're young, it's easy to find pleasure in things. But remember that youthfulness and energy are also gifts from God, and you'll give account for those things. Like older people, we have to, young people, keep your hands on today, but your eyes on tomorrow. Gain wisdom. Befriend older people. I don't know if you've noticed this about the Bible or not, but the Bible, the Apostle Paul gives instructions to older people to hang out with younger people. Why, would, why do you suppose that is? Because when you're young, you generally hang out with young people. And young people don't know stuff. And so when you hang out with people who don't know stuff, you also don't know stuff. So Paul's very wise, and he says, if you're young, don't hang out with young people. They don't know stuff. Go hang out with somebody who's old, because they know stuff, and you'll learn stuff. Verse 10, young people, put away vexation. Put away pain while you're young. What the preacher seems to be saying here is that God has made us physical and psychological beings, and for the sake of fruitfulness in God's kingdom and the advance of the gospel, take care of yourself physically and mentally. Sorrow and pain and distressing situations, that's a guarantee in life. As you get older, you're going to have those days, and those are good. That, you, you need those days of, of sorrow and distress and trouble and suffering. Resistance is how we grow. But for now, when you're young, there's little to worry about, little to complain about. Don't. There's no spiritual brownie points for being miserable. Christians have tried this over the years. Martin Luther used to wear scratchy clothes and sleep in the cold without blankets because he thought that his self-induced misery somehow placated God. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, used to starve himself because he believed it made him more holy. Well, fasting is one thing, but hungriness is not closer to godliness. 
And all of that is silliness. And eventually both of those men came to their senses. God hears your prayers, whether you're wearing scratchy wool or cashmere. Don't think that self-induced pain means that you get to cut in line in heaven. God uses suffering to sanctify us. But let's not try and force his hand, weirdos. All right, so, so far the preacher has taught us to work smart and trust the details to God, to enjoy every day of our life, to know that every day in our life we will give an account to God for the resources and how we spent them. And the last thing the preacher tells us is this, live your aging life with God in the center. Live your aging life with God in the center. This is chapter 12, 1 to 8, which on first reading is very confusing. But with God's help, I'll help you see what I think the preacher's doing here. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil day comes and years draw near to which you'll say, I'm not happy with this. Before the sun and the moon and light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, the grinders cease because they're few. Those who look through the windows are dimmed. Doors in the street are shut. The sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, and the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. The first word in chapter 12 is very important in the Bible. It's the word remember. Read through the book of Deuteronomy. That word appears often. Because Deuteronomy was... Deuteronomy is really the retelling of the story of God's deliverance of his special people and bringing them into the promised land. And you remember the story if you know your Bible well. The first generation that came out of Egypt in slavery, what happened to them? They all died off because of their disbelief and unbelief in in the Lord. And so God raised up the second generation. And as he was bringing them into the promised land, he told them over and over again, remember me. Remember, I took you out of slavery. Remember, don't forget, remember me. Often through the scriptures we're being told. To remember why. We're such dreadfully forgetful people. We don't know our own history very well. And so how important it is for us to remember what the Lord has brought us out of. In those moments when you're suffering, in those moments when you're really just despairing of life, when you're under the heavy hand of the Lord, it's good to remember back through all of the ways that he has brought you through similar situations. And remind yourself, my God who saved me yesterday is the same God who will save me today, is the same God who will save me tomorrow. Remember. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Keep God at the center of your life. Live every day as if God were in the middle. As God's purposes were central to your life. As God's gospel is central to your life. Because it's so easy for us to get distracted. Many of us, have the spiritual attention span of a three-year-old in a toy store. Anything noisy and flashy, and we're just entranced. And the preacher tells young people, 
Build these certain patterns into your life while you're young. Remember your creator in the days of your youth because there's evil days coming. The sun will get dark. It won't be so easy to see. You need a good foundation because a storm is coming. And so I take this to mean build good patterns into your life when you're young. Make a schedule, a devotion schedule. Read the Bible every day. Stick to that schedule. Make it a priority. Learn as much as you can. Grow in your knowledge of God. Because there's coming a day when you're going to need to use that knowledge. You're going to need to know that God took you out of Egypt. You're going to need to remember your God. And then we get to the confusing verses of 3 through 7. Now, you have to remember that Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It doesn't read like the epistles in the New Testament. It reads much more, it's much more poetic in its language. And so verses 3 to 7, when you really slow down and read them carefully, you learn that they're some of the most beautiful, poetic words ever written about aging. The preacher is talking about, he's describing the process of getting old using the metaphor of an old house. So I'll see if I can help you. Remember the creator in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. What are the keepers of the house? The keepers of the house are his hands, which used to be steady and strong, but now they shake. When the strong men are bent, A statement about his legs, which are now old and bowed. The grinders cease because they are few. What do you suppose the grinders are? His teeth. They don't grind too much anymore because many of them have fallen out. Those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. A statement about his poor eyesight and loss of hearing as he gets older. He rises up at the sound of a bird. How many of you are the age now where that's the case? You're getting up earlier and earlier in the morning. His voice is weakened with age. All the daughters of song are brought low. Verse 5. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. When he was young, he was fearless. If there was a light bulb up high, he would... Put a stepladder on top of a table and change the light. But now he's older and now he knows that's dangerous and he could fall and break a hip. Then he he mentions this bit about the almond tree. In my research, I learned that an almond tree, when it's in blossom, is white. And from a distance, it looks like an old man with white hair. Probably a reference to the old man's hair turning white. The grasshopper drags itself along, a poetic statement about how he's getting older now. He used to be agile like a grasshopper, bouncy. Now he's old and drags himself along. It's a burden just to move. Desire fails. Well, I'll let you figure that one out. It could refer to his appetite for food. It could refer to a different kind of appetite, which I'm told both go with age. He says, remember your creator because man is going to his eternal home. He's talking about dying. He's talking about the mourners going about the streets. He's going to his grave to his eternal home, and his loved ones will mourn him. Verses 6 and 7 continue the poetic language by saying, before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken. Many commentators think this refers to a golden lamp being suspended by a silver chain. 
And as it falls and breaks, the light goes out. Same thing with life. As we die, the light goes out. A similar meaning comes in the next metaphor about the pitcher being shattered, the broken wheel at the cistern. Life is lost. Man returns to dust. Just as God said. You remember what God said to Adam in the garden as a penalty for his sin? You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And man's spirit returns to God who made him. And the preacher ends his sermon with the same phrase he began the sermon back in chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As we've learned from this book, life has meaning. But the meaning of life under the sun is hard to see. It's even harder to hold on to. The moment you think you have it, it slips through your fingers. Like grasping for the wind. That's reality in life under the sun. We're all going to die one day. All of us will give an account to God for how we live how we spent the resources He gave to us. And here is the wisdom of the preacher of Ecclesiastes saying to you and to me, remember your Creator. Put God in the center of your life. No one has thought of eternity too soon, but plenty have thought of eternity too late. Ask yourself, is God at the center of my life? Have I put something or someone else in the middle? If my friends were to describe what is most important to me, what would they say? Well, he really loves Jesus. He's all the time talking about the Lord and church. Or... He really loves the Buckeyes. He's all the time talking about football. Or he really loves this job. He's all the time talking about his career. What lines are you drawing between your resources of time and talent and treasure to helping someone follow Jesus? Are you connecting the gifts that God has given you to helping others follow Him? I can think of three reasons why you might not be involved in helping others follow Jesus. Three reasons why you might not be involved in helping others follow Jesus. We'll end with this. One reason you might not be helping someone follow Jesus is because you're not a Christian. You still think that your life is yours, in which case, I would encourage you to rethink that notion. Your life is not yours. You were made for more than just your own pleasure. And you're selling yourself way short in thinking that. God has made you for more than just you. And you're putting yourself in danger, being like that servant who buried their treasure from eventually getting removed from the very presence of the Lord forever. Another reason why you might be 
not involved in helping others follow Jesus because you are a Christian, but you didn't know that's what you were supposed to do. Or you didn't know how to do it. In which case, I would say a couple of things. First, get yourself plugged into a Living Stones discipleship group. We have a number of them. We're going to relaunch a number of them in January. You know, they're taking break for the holidays and they're going to start back up in January. Get yourself plugged into one of them. And then grab one of those Living Stones guides in the Gospel of Mark and invite someone you know to sit down and study the Bible together. You might be surprised at just how wonderful it is to open up God's Word with someone you know, to read it together, to pray together, to encourage one another, and then to eat together. It's simple and it's fulfilling. Another reason why you might not be helping someone follow Jesus is because you are a Christian, but you're just being disobedient. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples stood around watching him go up into heaven. And they just kept staring up into the sky. And so God had to send a couple of angels along, and he had to say, these angels, they had to say, hey boys, what y'all doing? Staring into the sky. You have your marching orders. Get to work. Guess what they did? They got to work. They had a prayer meeting. Because that's what Christians do. They go to prayer meetings. And the Holy Spirit showed up at that prayer meeting. And they started helping others follow Jesus. Now, uh, you might be like the disciples. Staring up into heaven. I'm no angel. But I do work for the same boss. So, You have your marching orders. You know what to do. Go get to work. Look for opportunities that God has already given you to help someone follow Jesus. Encourage someone in the Lord. It's really not difficult. It's really a matter of just caring enough about someone else to call them on the phone, to read the scriptures together, to read one of those books out there, to pray for them, and to encourage them. Whichever you are, one, two, or three, I want you to hear what the Lord Jesus told those faithful stewards of his money. When he returned and found them faithful over his gift, he says this, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Cornerstone, I want you to see that this is about your joy. Helping someone else you know follow Jesus is about God's glory and their good and your joy that you share with Jesus in doing the very thing that he did when he came to earth. Amen? Please stand for the prayer of confession. Will you pray with me? Father, we are deeply indebted to you this morning for your revelation of yourself to us. You've not left us to wonder what we should do with our lives. You've told us 
in your word. You revealed to us your will, and for that we thank you. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to hear what you have spoken this morning. Some of us may hear it and forget it almost as soon as we leave. Would you spare us that sinful dismissal of your truth? Lord, your Son deserves our all, our obedience. Help us to give Him what He rightfully deserves out of the life that He rightfully bought. Lord, we confess to you that we have misused the lives you've given us. We spent our time doing our own things, building our own kingdom instead of yours. We spent our talents to make our name great instead of yours. We've wasted our money on that which has really no impact on the kingdom of heaven. Please forgive us. Would you enable us, your servants, to see our lives as a stewardship from your hand? Would you open our eyes to see the wonderful, freeing reality that we are not our own? We were bought with a price. And would you grant to us the wherewithal to spend these lives that you purchased for your glory and your good name? Father, grant us the deep joy of helping one another follow you. Grant to us to know all the ways that you've equipped us to serve. Grant to us to know all the ways that you've equipped us to help. And help us, enable us to serve you faithfully. We ask these things in Jesus' name because we know that he's deserving of our whole life all of our time, all of our talents, and all of our treasures. Amen. Well, if you've confessed your sins before the Lord and you're trusting in Him, then listen to these reassuring words which Matt read at the opening. Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The light of God's grace has shone to us today.